0: Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at the shepherd'scrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks and I'm a pastor, I come alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Hey guys, before we get into session two of The Intensive, I just want to remind you about the newsletter that's going to be starting in July. If you're interested in being a part of that, which will get you a newsletter monthly, and then at the end of the year, we'll get you a thumb drive with all the content for the year so that you can actually own it and have it personally, then please reach out to me. You could message me, and then in July, you can sign up for that $5 a month subscription, and then you'll be able to get access to all that. Thank you so much for considering that, and I hope you enjoy Session 2 at the Intensive 2023. This is Joshua Jenkins.
1: Well, Jared uh, asked me to talk a little bit about Christendom in real life. Um, as he, he's mentioned last year, if you, a lot of you guys were here, uh, Scott Tungay did a great job talking about a lot of the theory of Christendom and uh, the localist outworking of that. And so Jared wanted me to speak along with Ian later today because this is a subject which a lot of the guys at our church, uh, the families at our church, have been working through, talking about, and uh, actually taking steps toward implementing uh, on a real practical level. So... On the one hand, I feel super unqualified to say anything about it because we just we were stumbling out of the gate here trying to figure things out. But we have done some things, so um, anyway, I'll offer what I can. Um, first, the thing to get about just a basic, super quick definition of, of Christendom, if you're not just to sit, state where I'm coming from, is the idea of Christendom is Christian society or Christian civilization where every sphere of life and every realm of endeavor, business, government, family, uh, church, state, all these things are submitted to the Lordship of Christ and are intentionally um, seeking to do what they do in accordance with God's standards found in His Word. So that includes every area of life. And so basically it's, there's a, a historical Christendom which is what became Western Civilization. And there problems with it, but it was a real thing that happened where you had nations and peoples, where the whole society said, we're a Christian society, and let's try and do that. And there's a lot of mistakes made, but that's why there's talk about a Christendom 2.0, because it's fallen, we don't live in a Christian society in the same way that it once was, and so what do we do to build a new Christendom? We're Christendom 2.0. Uh, the thing that we have to realize about it is that it's a generational project. It has to be. Meaning it's not just about our own lives or just about our own personal, individual Christian living, but it's about building Christian civilization for generations after us. Not, not just us and our children, but generations that we will never meet. That's got to be... Uh, in view when we're talking about building civilization, something that lasts, something that will outlive us, uh, and that will grow beyond us. that So basically, we need to just lay foundation and framework for our children and their children and so forth to actually make progress and build things upon. So if that's the case, if the idea of Christendom is, is a cross-generational, and the first Christendom was, you know. A thousand years give or take and that means then that our thinking about it has to be long-term thinking Uh, i think so often as christians in modern evangelicalism we have short-term thinking about our christian lives we just think how do i live here and now as a christian in my own personal life and that's obviously right and important that's part of it but that's not the only thing that's not going to build a civilization Um, Uh, as intentionally. So what we need if we want to engage in a project of building Christendom or Christian society, we need uh, something that is sustainable and that is uh, working towards continuity across generations and time. And so, you know, like I said, a lot of modern Christians just think, my life here now, how do I retire? How do I set something up for my kids, maybe my grandkids at best? And um, it's more than just our family, but it's civilization building. So we're thinking at a societal level, not in a communistic type of way. We, we despise that. But uh, this kind of modern evangelical short-term thinking is not biblical Christian thinking. Uh, when you consider the whole what the Bible says about time, about our lives, about the future, about planning, and things like that. And we understand this. Um, in our own personal lives as Christians. Uh, You know, personally, we understand long-term thinking, because that's the whole idea of delayed gratification, resisting sin, because we're resisting a short-term pleasure for the better, longer-term gain. So we understand that on on a personal level, but I want to say we should take that kind of thinking on a society, civilization-building level, okay? And even Jesus himself modeled this for us, Hebrews 12, 2. Um, he endured, uh, for the joy set before him, he endured the suffering and shame of the cross. So Jesus looked to the future, he looked to the joy, the reward, and said, I'll suffer now for the long term. So he had a long term uh, mentality. So that's what we should have as Christians, but not just in our personal lives, but on a societal level. Um, Think about a lot of the Proverbs we just skim over or, or don't know that well. Proverbs 13:22, A righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Okay, uh, so the Christian view of just taking care of your family is generational. Your children's children. That's what a righteous man uh, does and strives to do. So, not only is it long-term, but if we're thinking long-term uh, beyond our own lives then that means we have to think uh, tactically or um, strategically. You can't plan long-term if you're not being strategic or or tactical in your thinking. Because you know the here and now mentality, we just kind of take life as it comes and react and adapt. And there's a place for that. But if you think long-term and building something long-term, that requires you to count the cost, like a worker going to build, or a guy, a king's deciding if he's going to go to war. He's Counting up the cost. Is it worth it? So we have to think not only long-term in our desires, but think of actual tactics of how we can accomplish uh, building a Christian civilization. A couple of things to say about that further. Our enemies as Christians, so the world, the flesh, and the devil, particularly the world and the devil and kingdom of darkness, they think strategically. They think uh, tactically. Um, the devil himself, the Bible, what was he called? The, the the ancient dragon, the serpent, who was, in Genesis 3, the most crafty or the most cunning of all the beasts in the field. So, our enemy, so he's the deceiver, he's the, the father of lies. He thinks tactically and strategically about how, he, you know, all throughout the story of the Old Testament is all about, From Genesis 3.15, you have the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, put at odds with each other. And the whole Old Testament leading up to Christ is this strategic battle back and forth. The ancient serpent through the Canaanites and all these different enemies of Israel and God's people is strategically trying to stamp out the seed, okay? Or corrupt the seed, so to speak, to prevent the coming of Christ. So the enemy that we have thinks that way so if we're going to defeat that enemy we have to think uh strategically and tactically uh, about how we're going to defeat him so you have all kinds of psalms that are about god's people escaping snares of their enemies psalm 124 is all about that Um, escaping the snares so the enemy is trying to set traps and snares so if we're going to win, we have to outmaneuver and outthink the enemy. So, that's, that's a really important thing. We have to recognize we're in a war. We can't just go through life passively at Christians. Um, as Christians. We have to think as if we're in a war. How do generals or captains think in a war? They are strategic. They're tactical in what they're doing. It's on purpose. It's for a, a long-term end goal. So, if we're in a war, we should want to win that war. And we know we do. And I think part of the problem is we know that Jesus wins in the end, so we'll just kind of float on till we get there. But if Jesus wins in the end, shouldn't we be uh, you know, acting like we're winning a war and supposed to win battles? So Jesus himself told his disciples to think this way. When he sent out, I think it's in that same passage you mentioned last night, it may be a different one, but uh, where he mentions um, in Matthew 10, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So if Jesus tells his disciples to be wise as serpents, what is he saying? Well, biblically, you have the serpent who's the enemy, who's crafty, he's cunning, he's a deceiver, he's wise in an ungodly way. And so if we're to be wise as serpents but innocent as doves, That means means we're to be a good, righteous type of crafty, a righteous type of cunning, uh, holy, pure, innocent as a dove, and crafty. So the enemy is sinfully, wickedly crafty. We're to be righteously, uh, wise, tactical, crafty in our maneuvering against him. So with that said, I want to give you three practical areas of where you can think strategically and practically that are important for building Christian civilization and things that we are working on uh, in our church. So the first thing is that historically, um, the historical definition of Christendom necessarily includes the civil magistrates. So some people today will use the term Christendom to refer to just evangelicalism. And that's fine, but that's not the historical definition of Christendom. It is the civil magistrates uh, carrying out God's law. And there's you can disagree on how that works out, but that basic principle. So the first thing is we should be thinking strategically. If that's the case, if that's part of Christendom, then we don't have Christendom until we have the civil magistrates. So we should be thinking strategically about how we can have the civil magistrates. Okay, so I don't think the Christian worldview advocates for revolution or taking it by force. So I don't advocate for any of those types of things. But there are ways we can be practical, strategic, crafty in a righteous way about taking um, uh, the civil magistrates, the governing authorities. So um, the first thing is we have to be willing to be able to be in those positions and to encourage men to be in those positions. Because I think a lot of Christians don't like to be involved in politics. Um, they don't want to, you know, even, even Christians who believe um, Jesus is Lord over the political sphere, they just say, it's a dirty game. It's a waste of my time. I don't want to be involved in the political sphere. And certainly it's not for everybody. But we have to be willing as Christians for the right men who God calls to support them, or to be the one to be willing to be in those positions. Because what are civil magistrates? They're supposed to be elderly, not necessarily in age, but elder civil fathers um, who are looking out for the, the city that they are a, a great elder father of. So we should want godly Christian men in those positions, um, not godless career politician types who are in it for all kinds of corrupt reasons. So that means Christians first got to be willing to do the the boring, lame job of politics that it is on many levels. Um, Practically, what can you do? First thing you should start doing that we've been doing for several years now is take what influence you have to influence your local, whether it's your state representatives, state senators, or local city council and mayor, police chief, fire chief, those positions, whatever influence you have. And if you're a pastor, just that title will carry influence. Um, because especially your state reps, they recognize if you say, Hey, I'm a pastor. Let me talk. To, I, I'd like to t- meet with you and talk with you. They hear, Oh, pastor, there's, you know, hundred plus people that he's influencing to vote for me or not. So they're going to take the call. They're going to take the meeting. Uh, most, most times, uh, maybe not in certain areas, but so take what influence you have and seek to gain more influence by being a community leader figure if you're in business or whatever, and uh, use it to influence your, your present authorities God has placed over you. Because that'd be awesome if we could see real repentance, conversion, reform from those who are in office. So practically, um, here's something you can do if you haven't done any, any of this. Just simply call or email your local state rep and say, hey, I'm a pastor at So-So Church, or hey, I'm, I work at this business, or hey, I'm your constituent. Would you like to meet? I'd like to meet with you for lunch. Um, I just, the first time I tried that, the response was, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And so I got to have lunch with my rep and um, talked about all kinds of stuff. And um, so just start by doing that. Email, say, hey, I'm praying for you. How can me and my church pray for you? Um, and then the more you have those, that communication, call their office. If you can go to your state capital and visit, we do that sometimes go to their office, say, hey, I am I live in your district, whatever. The more you do that, the more you have opportunity then to be able to say, hey, here's this issue, here's this bill, here's what God's word says about it, here's what God requires of you. And you can begin to disciple those in that place. And then the more you go with that, we're dealing with this now. I'm involved in um, uh, our Missouri abolition uh, political action group um, Abolish Abortion Missouri, where we are um, putting political pressure on our representatives who say they're pro-life, but who oppose uh, abolishing abortion in our state. Uh, In fact, we just had a hearing for our abolition bill two weeks ago or so in Missouri that would completely abolish abortion, criminalize it, no exceptions. They had a hearing, last minute hearing, Um, They took months to give it a hearing, last minute hearing. The Senate was made up of nine senators. The committee was made up of nine senators. Seven of them were pro-life Republicans. Four showed up to the hearing, and none of them voted for it. They all pro-life people opposed it. They only allowed two speakers to speak in favor or against it. The two people who spoke against the bill was Samuel Lee, he's a Roman Catholic, who's the head of Campaign Life Missouri, a pro-life organization. He opposed the bill, and the woman who's the head of Missouri Right to Life, she opposed the bill. And so that went against, so we sent out um, these surveys, our group sent out surveys to our state senators, saying, hey, will you support an abolition bill? Will you assign it to committee? Will you vote for it? The committee chair um, who said she would support it, and all the others backed out on that. So because we've been doing this for a few years in developing relationships, now the move is going to be we're going to be putting political pressure on them, and we're going to publish to our readers, uh, Senator Coleman said she would vote for this bill. Well, she had a chance to, and she opposed it. Okay, So we're thinking you got to think strategically in those kind of things. So that's just one example. Tons of areas you can do that with and on a much more local level, too, in your city council mayor. In fact, Ian, uh, he just ran for city mayor of the city. Um, he lost, but I'll let him tell you about that if he wants. But I think it was a net gain because it's it's giving him more uh, influence in the city, more ends and relations with the police, fire, and those kind of st- things. So um, that's just an idea of how to begin to do those things. And uh, so talk about this thing. So second area, be quicker here. So you have the civil magistrate area. Second area is you need to build Christian civilization. You need a durable community, a durable community of guys. Um, So that means you have to, ideally it comes from your church group, your your men at church, um, because it should be a work of God's people, fulfilling the great commission, evangelism and discipleship all throughout this, not just saying, you know, we want Christian government, but we want you to believe the gospel, you know. Um, So to have a durable community is very essential because if you start to think tactically and strategically and act like you're in a war with the enemy, then you're going to get shots fired back at you, so to speak, from the enemy. If you start attacking and making moves and advancing ground for the kingdom of God, the enemy's going to notice that eventually and start making moves against you. And so you've got to have a durable community. Otherwise when those shots come back, guys spread and run. So that means you got to have intention and purpose. You can't just assume you're going along with these things. So things that we've done to cultivate that is literally getting guys together, um, for like two, three years, every, you know, once a week, up eight to eight to two in the morning. You know, enjoying whiskey together and talking about these things, making plans, strategies. There's a lot of things I want to say, but because of our strategy, I can't say everything that we've done strategically. Um, so that's part of it: is don't just run your mouth to everybody about what you're doing and let the enemy know about your plans. Okay, so intentionally talk with guys about. What practically can we do to start moving this direction? What groundwork can we lay? What are actual steps we can take? Um, And everything you're thinking of right now, everything and more, absolutely talk about it. Put it on the table. Everything you think you can't say before someone says you're insane, everything, you know, that's the stuff you need to be talking about. So have that because the fact is we've already been through... uh, um, incredible trials and attacks. Um, and if we had not done these things, we'd been splintered. So um, extremely, extremely important. So get connected, you know, have those conversations with the men at your church. If you're on an island in your area, then you may have to move uh, to find that. Ideally, stay where you are, help cultivate that, But if you're not in a position of leadership, if you just don't have that, you've tried, I'd say try, try, and try, then you may need to move um, and be willing to do that. In fact, one example at our church, our church is in Springfield, Missouri, and like one or two people actually live in Springfield. Everyone else a year ago lived in all the communities surrounding Springfield. So we're like all 45 minutes apart of our homes from each other or more. And so we're like, this is a problem. Uh, We love driving and meeting the church together, but throughout the week, it's hard to have the community being so far apart. And so we've done the crazy idea of actually taking steps, finding an area, agreeing upon it, and moving to an area together. Um, Not like a compound, but just certain address locations. Uh, So guys have already made those moves, sold their homes and moved, and there's more in the process of doing that. So that radical thinking maybe is maybe you don't need to do that maybe you do so intentional purpose doing those things don't you got to talk about it otherwise it won't happen you know if you if you say if you don't say what the mission is and lay out how we're going to accomplish this mission then don't expect the mission to be accomplished if you want a mission accomplished you got to lay it out and say this is how we're going to do it and do it last last area This may seem not as important, but I think it's incredibly just as important as these things, and that is uh, traditions. You have to have uh, traditions, good traditions. Um, And I'll give you a few examples of what I mean. Traditions are things that make a society or a culture or a people worth preserving, okay? If a culture has no tradition that's worth anything or that's good, then it should just be destroyed, you know, it should be done, you know, the tradition of child sacrifice in the Aztec peoples was not a good tradition to be continued, so it, it was right to be destroyed. We got to have good traditions, um, so one basic area would be in your church, those of you who are in pa- a pastor or who are in leadership, your church worship needs to be that which is able to be continued through generations. If your church worship is just centered around a specific age demographic, then it's going to end. People are going to leave when that demographic gets old. But if it's something that all ages at the same time can participate in, elderly, people in their prime, young children, babies can grow up and continue to do throughout all their ages, which I think is what worship should be, that is something that is preservable, generationally speaking. That is something which will give you continuity. So you, good church worship traditions, very important. And there's different ways you can do that, but you've got to think that way about it. But then, just in the community itself, having good community traditions. Um, so, for example, one thing we have done is, you know, we're Baptists, Reformed Baptist, so we're not... Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Anglican or Lutheran that have church calendars, okay, but I recognize that there's some good things about the tradition of certain holy days or holidays on church calendars, so what we've done is just kind of looked at all those different calendars and picked out the best ones that we like uh the best you know uh kind of not normal Christian holidays, obviously there's Christmas and those types of things but uh, we've made a tradition of, for example, Saint George's Day, um, which you may or may not be familiar with. But this is the story of Saint George, who was a guy in the 300s, who was a knight. He ended up being martyred for his faith. But before that, there's a story of him slaying a giant or a a, a dragon, and you know, saving this little kingdom. And it's just a revered story and legend. Uh, um, but what we've done is we've observe this holiday because that's the gospel story is there's a knight in shining armor who slays the dragon and and saves the bride so that's a great way to remember real historical person which also reminds us of uh, the work of christ and which we can pass on to our children so obviously you get together we have english food because english it's an english holiday and we get a dragon pinata and have the kids just you know beat the junk out of it and uh, it's something they will never forget. So every spring is marked by the kids getting pumped for St. George's Day. So that's just one example. But those types of things you can put down as markers, annual markers, to mark your time of the year by the work of Christ in history. And that is something which makes a culture and a, and a people worth preserving. Um, tradition honors your fathers. Okay, it honors those who came before us. We're commanded, honor your father and mother. Not just physically, but spiritual fathers. Honor them. And what's the, in Ephesians, the first command with the promise. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you will live long in the land. So what do we see in our day-to-day? Rampant dishonor and disobedient to father and mother. They're not going to live long in the land. But if we're a people who honor father and mother, will have longed the land. So that's why it's important. Because God says, here's an ethical marker for me to bless you. Okay? So, that's it. Thanks, guys. Quick block. Yeah.
0: You you, you said...